throughout the day, we make nearly 200 plus decisions about food. Your day actually begins on the night before. Welcome to Live Well, Be Well, a show to help high performers improve their health and well-being. Are you tired of feeling tired? Well, I've got the perfect guest for you because Dr. Sachin Panda is a world-renowned researcher in the field of circadian biology. He believes that the timing of our food, sleep, exercise, and light is the key to health and longevity. His app on Time Health is helping countless people combine these factors to improve their well-being from his years of research. In today's discussion, you'll learn how to optimize your circadian rhythms and reach peak performance. So I feel like everyone listening to this will be like, how do they know if they are aligned with their circadian rhythm? All of us are born with a uh, circadian rhythm. So as long as you are feeling sleepy every day and then going to bed, so which almost all of us feel, uh, mm-hmm. you have a circadian rhythm. Then the question is, are you nurturing your circadian rhythm? The first thing to learn is what we should be doing at what time of the day or night. And if mm-hmm. we do those tasks, then we can nurture our circadian rhythm. And then the circadian rhythm will pay us back with health benefits. So that's why um, it's important to know uh, how our lifestyle is aligned with our circadian rhythm. And when we mm-hmm. say lifestyle, lifestyle is what, when, and how much we eat, sleep, and move around. So in that way, uh, nurturing your circadian rhythm boils down to very simple five or six uh, simple ideas or simple things that almost everybody can do. What are these five things that we can do to align our circadian rhythms? Yeah, so the first thing is your day actually begins on the night before. So the first thing to do is to go to bed at a consistent time because right after we go to bed, within the next two hours or so, our brain produces growth hormone that repairs our damaged cells and then we go through different stages of sleep. During sleep, we detoxify our brain. Mm. We also strengthen the connections between different brain regions so that our brain, different parts talk to each other pretty well. We store the memories that we have made throughout the day. So all of these things happen if we go to bed at a consistent time and stay in bed for at least eight hours for all adults, we should be sleeping somewhere between six and a half to seven and a half hours. So that mm-hmm. means if we set aside eight hours in bed, then we'll get that restorative sleep. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. And then the second is after waking up in the morning, wait for at least an hour or two before your first bite of calorie um, or food. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, as soon as we wake up, our stress hormone cortisol, cortisol begins to rise and reaches at its peak level somewhere between waking up and maybe 45 minutes after we wake up. So that means for the first one hour after waking up, we have very high level of stress hormone. And we know that we should not combine stress and food because stress hormone doesn't allow our body to process the food 
properly. How about coffee? Yeah, so coffee. Just have thinking. <laughs> coffee is that that will that will heighten your stress hormone. <laughs> yeah, it will heighten your stress hormone, and uh, particularly coffee with cream and sugar actually is worse because uh, during the same one to two hours after waking up, our sleep hormone melatonin is slowly declining, but still pretty high compared to the daytime level, mm-hmm. and melatonin inhibits or suppresses insulin production. And we know that every time we eat or drink something that has a little bit of sugar or carbohydrate, uh, our body has to produce some insulin to process that carb mm-hmm. or glucose. So if we eat something that has carbs, sugar, even milk has a lot of sugar too, mm-hmm. then a body cannot process that glucose pretty well. So that's why it's good to avoid for one or two hours um, any food or drink that has carbohydrate or sugar. So black coffee? Uh, Black coffee, maybe, but at the same time, if you are prone to, say, acid reflux or heartburn, Mm. uh, then that's not a good idea to have black coffee in empty stomach. Okay. So even maybe an hour, wait till you have your coffee. Yeah. I feel yeah. like I'm really upsetting some people listening to the show, but this is this is the facts. Well, I mean, one thing I got to say that in the, in the pursuit of perfection, one should not give up what is good enough for you. And so, yeah. As I'm saying. I completely are, agree. Yeah. There are six different things. And if you can follow four or five, then um, you should be happy. Then you're doing really well. Yeah. <laughs> Because, you know, we know that if you're a teenager, nearly 90% of teenagers, 95% of teenagers in Western countries don't get sufficient sleep. Does it affect what time you go to sleep? I know we're still getting onto these five things, but just because we're in the first one or two, I'm thinking, does it matter if you go to sleep at 10 p.m. or does it matter if you go to sleep at 12 a.m.? So that's why I say your day begins on the night before, because if you have to leave home at seven o'clock in the morning to catch the train, bus, or to be at your work, that means you should be waking up at six and then back calculate what time you should be going to bed. Uh, So that's why it's very personal. Uh, Whereas if your day doesn't begin until 10 o'clock in the morning, then it's okay. You can go to bed at 12 or one so that you can get enough restorative sleep. But unfortunately for most of us, our day begins around somewhere between eight and nine, even including high school students and college students. Uh, so that means if you're going to bed at midnight, you may not be getting enough sleep. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking, because the next one was food and wait a couple of hours, but I'm thinking if you're tired, grenolin, which is your hunger hormone, you know, they start spiking a lot more. So you actually crave more carbohydrate rich food. So I'm thinking even the very first step is the most vital, isn't it? Because if you're not rested, all of a sudden you're going to be having this kind of lapse on these next steps that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you brought up a very important point. And we all can relate to it because when we don't sleep enough, then the brain is not ready to take information, process information, and also uh, take decision. So, Mm. for example, in the morning, 
You may be a little bit hungry, but your brain can amplify that hunger signal, thinking that you are really dying for food. Mm. And then it cannot help you decide well, because even though you had promised the night before that you eat only healthy food, your brain will actually crave for that sugary, sweet, or that croissant in the morning. Yeah, and it, uh, people have experimentally shown that, that when your brain hasn't slept enough, it just makes bad decisions. It's not only about mm. food, it also makes bad decisions you know, interpersonal life. So sleep is so much important, not only for mm. just having sanity, but also making decisions about very simple things like what to eat, how much to eat, when to eat, and when to stop eating. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just think about how many times you have to think about food a day. It takes a lot of energy to make these decisions. So Yeah, so <laughs> throughout the day, we make nearly 200 plus decisions about food, uh, what to eat, what combination of food to eat, what to drink, how much to drink, when to stop drinking, and all of these decisions related to food, we wow. make every single day. Okay, so we've got six six and a half to seven and a half hours sleep, really eight hours in bed. Yeah. Then we've got to not eat for the first one to two hours of anything that's going to be probably but water, if yeah. we can, maybe some black coffee, but we don't want anything that's going to spike our glucose or insulin levels. So then what's the third thing that people can do? So have your first meal, and I'll call it breakfast because you are actually breaking a fast. So Mm -hmm. it's not the morning meal, but it's breaking the fast, breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) So have your breakfast at a consistent time because the first meal of the day actually synchronizes your body clock all the clocks together and also synchronize and tells that, okay, so this is the beginning of your digestive day. And just like we have clocks everywhere in the body, we have clocks in our digestive system, in our liver, and all these clocks, they're not really tied to the day-night cycle directly, but they, they are tied to the day-night cycle indirectly because we sleep and wake. But they actually take a big timing cue from when we eat, particularly the first breakfast. So that means, for example, suppose say somebody eats breakfast at 8 o'clock every single day, and then one or two days he skips or delays that breakfast to say noon, mm-hmm. breaking the fast. So then that day, two things happen. One is, since the clock anticipates when you should be eating breakfast, Around 8 o'clock, your body is ready to eat breakfast. Your digestive juice is ready, your stomach is grumbling, and your liver is ready to process that food, and you didn't eat breakfast. So then the body gets confused. What happened? And maybe this guy had changed it. It's in a different time zone or something. Maybe this person has flown from, say, England to Moscow or somewhere, and... um, Let's reset the time for tomorrow. So two things happen. Then then when you eat breakfast or your lunchtime, um, when you're eating that, then your body was not ready. So you may not be able to process that food well. So two bad things can happen and does happen actually. When we change the breakfast time, it also changes our clock for the next day. So that must lead to like indigestion. I'm just thinking if you're if yeah, yeah. shifting it, you must be, people must start 
experiencing maybe acid reflux or indigestion yeah. or, you know, that kind type of discomfort and even kind of gut issues as well. Yes, it does happen. And some people can relate to it. Uh, they say that they have to have something in the morning, otherwise they would have acid reflux or they don't feel well. Um, so that's what happens for a lot of people. So have your breakfast at a consistent time and then count eight, nine, 10, 11, or maximum 12 hours to eat all your food for the day. So that relates to time-restricted eating or intermittent fasting. So people always think that, okay, so intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating is eating within X number of hours. But there is another component to it that that, that breakfast or when you are breaking that fast or the fast meal should also happen at a consistent time. Say if somebody is some days in the week having starting their morning um, by breaking their fast at 11 a.m. because they're at work and that's when they're yeah. first getting hungry. And then it gets to the weekend and they're like, actually, you know, I've had a lion. I'm going to have my my lunch or breaking my fast, my breakfast at 1, 1.30. What does that actually do in the long term? <laughs> Thank you for listening so far. Now, I've been a customer of Arena Flowers for a very long time. So having them finally sponsor Live Well Be Well is utterly amazing. And I have a special discount code just for you guys. A big part of my self-care routine is self-love. And having flowers around my home, like you can see in the background if you're watching this on YouTube, is the perfect way to achieve that. Arena Flowers are the UK's number one ethical florist. All their packaging is free from single-use plastics. So if you're ready to put a smile on someone's face and positively impact the planet, use the discount code LWBW50 for 50% off your first three subscription boxes. Make your first order now by clicking the link in the show notes. Now let's get back to the episode. Yeah, so this is where it becomes a little fuzzy because the the reason why this person is waking up late in the weekend is because he or she was not sleeping enough during the weekday. So then the question is, uh, what is more important to catch up on lost sleep or to set an alarm, wake up and have your breakfast? <laughs> so <laughs> this, is a, this is a very personal question because if that person is so tired, so sleep deprived that that catch-up sleep is very important, then mm. maybe that's what that person should do. Mm -hmm. But what we have found is for most people, um, 10 hours is kind of the sweet spot because, mm -hmm. of course, there are some people who are headstrong. They can actually eat one meal a day and can feel healthy and happy. But for mere mortals like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you're 8 a.m., aren't you? you? You break your fast at 8 a.m., am I right? Yes. And, yes. Do you, and, and when do you finish eating? 6 p.m. 6 p.m. So that's 10 hours. Okay. So you're yeah, 10, 10 hours. hours. So you're, 10 like, you're hours. on the optimum. Okay. Yeah. What is more important is lifestyle is what, when, and how much we eat, sleep, and move every single day. It's not what we do for one or two months to lose weight or feel better and then go back to our bad habit, but which habit we can actually stick to long term. Mm -hmm. And for most people who are living in a family or with somebody else, significant other, eating within 
four to six hours is very difficult for both of them. Ten hours at least gives you some window so that the family or you can you can share a meal with your significant other. Which also is a huge health benefit, you know, yeah. that communal setting, the social yes. human connection, it's a massive part of, you know, yeah. I know long, longevity and centarians is kind of a buzzword right now, but it is, it's yeah. definitely part of that lifestyle and that community is, is human connection. Yeah, it's something that people can follow. So for example, between 10 and 10 year old and 100 year old, everybody can try to eat within 12 hours. So it's not actually easy. It's not that easy because what we find is less than 10% of people can consistently, this is very important, consistently eat within 12 hours. Why does this work? What is it doing to our bodies when we are fasting for a longer period of time? Yeah, so we uh, systematically looked at this recently, that paper came out in 2023, January. Um, of course, these are the experiments we can do in mice. Uh, mm-hmm. We asked, well, the benefits have to be beyond our digestive system or liver. So we looked at 22 different organs and brain regions, including kidney, heart, different parts of the digestive system. And we looked at all 20,000 plus genes, when they turn on, when they turn off, whether, what time, how high they turn on, how low they turn off, every single aspect. So it was a massive, wow. <laughs> several millions of data points. And then when we condense that, at least in mice, when mice fast and then eat, then during this eating time, few things happen. Those are very important for our well-being. One is various enzymes that are involved in repairing our DNA because every single day we damage our DNA, we're exposed to sun. Almost all of our food has some, I won't say toxin, but Xenobiotics, for example, mm-hmm. food flavoring agent, food coloring agent, um, many things in our food. So these things, they cause damage and the DNA has to be repaired. And those repair enzymes, they go to a very high level. If the mice had fasted and then it, if there was no fasting, then these genes don't turn on that much. So what we find is this eating followed by overnight fasting, uh, several hours of fasting, actually turn on these quality control mechanisms in every cell so that our cells are healthier by repairing DNA, by doing better quality control of enzymes, RNAs, uh, all these things happen during this feeding or eating phase. We also make some of the beneficial fat because when you think about fat, we think that all fats are bad, but actually all of our cells are wrapped around by a layer of fat. And that layer of fat has to be good quality of fat. And we always think that the fat that we eat is ends up in our cells, which is to some extent true, but we also make a good chunk of fat throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, we take that fat that we have eaten and we process it, make a better fat, or simply we also build fat from building blood. And that fat making process also improves if we have gone through some fasting followed by eating. The paper was published only a couple of months ago. So again, in mice, and we had seen some 
evidence of it in a human study where we had done biopsy, fat biopsy from people who went through very short term for a couple of weeks of uh, eight hours of eating and 16 hours of fasting. So some of it actually translates pretty well to humans. And so what did that show from that biopsy from the human trial? So we see a very similar trend that, yes, our, uh, of course, that was done only from fat cell, whereas this mm. mouse study is done on 22 different uh, tissues. So we see more broad picture. It's not only uh, fat, but, for example, our kidney, our gut, our liver, all of these, they, every day we're making new cells, repairing new cells and making new cells. And for that, we also need this fat layer. We also need uh, some good fats, those things, after a long period of fasting, several hours of fasting. So it's got a real a variety of benefits from just yeah. actually how our systems clean up, how it repairs DNA, but also how fats metabolized more efficiently. So this just makes me think, you know, the long-term benefits is just a huge reduction in chronic disease. Yes, that's what we also see. There are many mouse studies now uh, showing that this uh, type of time-restricted feeding or time-restricted eating in mice actually reduces the chance of uh, cancer. And also, if you even put a tumor inside a mouse, then that tumor doesn't grow well, doesn't grow rapidly if the mouse is going through this time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting. So there are two, two benefits. One, there is less incidence of cancer, less chance that cancer cells will start to grow. And second, even if they start, they cannot grow that fast. So you're basically starving the cancer cell. My visual analogy of this is yeah, just yeah, thinking, yeah. If, it's, if it's not growing, you're not feeding. You're not feeding, you're not, you're not creating an environment that's good for cancer cells. Exactly. And so how does this work on the side of, um, of our brain? Does this, does yeah. this link to dementia and, and Alzheimer's and, and these types of chronic diseases as well? Yeah, so there are a uh, few things that we know. For example, as we get older, one of the... So we always think of brain as a uh, part, of our bra part of our body that does the thinking. It also controls mm. a lot of different things. One thing that it controls is our motor pattern. So how we move our body, how we coordinate our walking. As we get older, a motor coordination is compromised. So that's why a lot of people fall because they just cannot coordinate when they're walking up the stairs or even on a treadmill. Many people mm. find it difficult to walk older people because they cannot coordinate the muscles. And many studies now have shown that time restricted feeding in animals improves their motor coordination. So even the older animals, they can actually stay on a treadmill or a rotating drum for a long time. So they can kind of balance themselves. So that's saying that the brain muscle or the brain body connection is much better under time restricting. Now, there are some mouse models of dementia, for example, Huntington disease. And mm. now few people are showing some preliminary data on Alzheimer's disease where the same mutation that causes disease in humans uh, has been tried in mice. And we are saying that these uh, mice, they are sleeping better under time-restricting because one thing common to many of the neurodegenerative diseases is 
uh, human patients who have this dementia and Alzheimer's disease, they don't sleep well. And we know that not sleeping well further exacerbates the disease. So one thing that can be done is at least to promote sleep. So that's what they do. This timeless eating actually helps to have a much better sleep-wake cycle. And uh, we still don't know whether it will reduce or delay the onset of dementia because those experiments have not yet been done. This is only 11 years ago we, we published this concept. And usually it takes usually it takes two to three years for the scientific community to accept certain things. And then the funding opportunities uh, opened up. And so now there are many ongoing basic science research testing whether timeless eating can delay the onset of dementia and certain kind of neurodegenerative disease or not. Because sometimes the effect of the gene or the mutation, if it is a mutation, is so severe that any simple lifestyle intervention may not do well. And we have seen this in many examples. For example, for lung cancer, one may be lifelong smoker and that we know increases the risk for lung cancer. But if a smoker gets lung cancer, stopping smoking is not going to help. It's too late. Yeah. So similarly, we don't know whether this will be enough or the other aspect is, can timeless eating be combined with certain drugs to improve the efficacy of those drugs? And that's a very brand new area because we know that circadian rhythm and time restraining, because time restraining also improves circadian rhythm. Circadian rhythms can influence the efficacy of many drugs. In fact, 80 plus percent of drugs that we take, starting from simple painkiller for arthritis pain to many cancer chemotherapy and even vaccination, even surgery, uh, that success depends on what time the drugs are taken or what time you have taken the vaccines or what time you're going through a surgery. So wow. another aspect is, can time restricting be combined with certain drugs to improve the efficacy of those drugs? And this is a particularly exciting area for treating very difficult to treat disease, for example, cancer and dementia. When is the best time to be taking these types of drugs, supplements or booking in appointments? Yes, yeah, so this all depends on the specific type of drugs. So, for example, in cancer, where a lot of studies have been done, in mid-80s, people discovered that uh, women going through chemotherapy, depending on which chemo, this is very important, certain chemos work much better in the morning, certain chemos work much better if they're taken in the evening. So it's not that all chemotherapies work at a certain time. So it depends on mm -hmm. the chemo, because it depends on which genes in our body uh, are targeted by that chemo. Mm -hmm. If that gene goes up in the evening or goes up in the morning, will determine whether that chemo should be taken in the morning or evening. Similarly, painkiller, many of the painkillers for arthritis pain, they um, act on pathways that are regulated by stress hormone cortisol. So, we know that people who have arthritis pain, the pain is more severe in the morning. They find it difficult to get out of bed. Their hands are stiff. Their joints are stiff. It takes a couple of hours for them to warm up and move around. 
Mm. So you suspect that the painkiller in the morning would be the best, but actually uh, the painkiller taken at bedtime it works much better in reducing morning pain. That has wow. led to even slow release formulation of this painkiller so that you take the painkiller at bedtime, but the medication is released around midnight, so pain is much more reduced in the morning. So that's another example. And for vaccination, I guess the rule of thumb is always uh, don't go for vaccination if you haven't slept well. So have at least a week of good night's sleep. So for example, those people who are traveling uh, a lot, they should not schedule their vaccination right after they come back from a long overseas travel with three plus hours of jet lag. And then on the next day morning, they should not go for vaccination. Because they're probably going to have more adverse effects, aren't they? If they do, they'll have more adverse effects to the reaction to the vaccine, or it just won't be as efficient. It's not just, uh, it's not that efficient. And so the vaccine takes a really long time to kick in, and sometimes they may not benefit as much as they would have if you have slept well for at least four or five days uh, before your vaccination. And vaccination in the morning is always better than in the afternoon. Quite a few studies in that in that area. This just makes me kind of think of such a wider health picture here. On yeah. in ten years' time, are we going to be looking more around when we schedule vaccines, when we schedule surgeries, when we take our supplements, when we take our painkillers, in relation to our circadian rhythm? Are some of us not gaining the effects that we should be because we're taking them simply at the wrong times? Yeah, that's true. And then this is another point that people should keep in mind when we. Think about circadian rhythm. It's not the time on your watch or something. It's your internal time. Mm. And typically, I would say the best way to monitor your circadian rhythm or what time you should be, it's maybe better to start thinking about what time you wake up. And maybe that's the time, that's kind of your 6 a.m. <laughs> so, for example, if you are habitually waking up at 10 a.m., it's okay if you go schedule your vaccination for 11 or 12, but if you're habitually waking up at 5 or 6, then maybe your optimum vaccination time may be 8 a.m. So think about your personal time. Don't think about the wall time or the clock time. As people are listening to this, I know they'll be going, I'm a morning person, I'm an evening person. And there's a lot of conversation now, especially um, in the sleep field, around something called chronotypes. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people now are referencing whether they're a lark, which is an early morning person, there's something that's a bear, I think it's mid-morning or, you know, 7.30 they wake up and they're more optimum in mid-morning. And then there's an owl where, you know, I think of many students in this sector, people like to kind of work a lot later. Do chronotypes exist? Is this a real thing? When you think about a behavior, or um, suppose in this case, uh, we're talking about chronotype, and uh, the first thing that comes to our mind is maybe my genes are like that. And then mm. we give up. We say, well, we're designed that way, so even if we try, we cannot change. Now I'll give you another example. So for example, we know there are a lot of people who are BMI 18, very lean people, and then uh, there are standard weight people, BMI between say, 20 to 23, 24, and then there are BM overweight people and obese people. Mm -hmm. Are we going to say that we are obese, we are overweight because our genes are like that? No. For many parts, we always relate that to our habit. 
because mm-hmm. if we dial back 100 years, we know that there are less than 10% of people who are obese. In 100 years, our genes have not changed that 40% of people are obese. So similarly here, we have to go back and ask, well, if there are a lot of night owls, and we know because people have gone back and looked at chronotype or what time people go to bed and wake up in populations that have no access to electricity. So this is pre-industrial kind of society. We don't see this wide distribution. We see a very narrow distribution. So then the question is, what are the modern day habits of lifestyle that may be interacting with our genetic predisposition or something to create this behavior? So now, suppose we start with uh, high school students and and college students, one idea is maybe after puberty, the sex hormones or the state of our brain interact makes our circadian clock more susceptible to light. So that's why when we have evening light, which all of us experience, then we are more likely to stay awake because that light does two things. It suppresses melatonin that supports sleep keeps us awake and also can reset our clock. And high school and college students nowadays, they get a lot of homework, they have evening activities, and sometimes their homework deadline is midnight. Mm. So they're more likely, there is, a, there is a structural, institutionalized pressure for them to stay awake till midnight or past mm-hmm. midnight. And when they're staying past midnight and they're doing it every single day, then it kind of becomes a habit because everything else also shifts accordingly. They have evening activities, they're going from their music practice or football practice or whatever it is, and then doing their homework and and then they're relaxing and going to bed. So then the question is, are most of the teenagers these days late chronotype because of their genes or because of their habit? or because of their work pressure. And here we can clearly see, yes, there is some reason, maybe these kids are going to bed because they're not given the opportunity to fall asleep for 10 o'clock. <laughs> That's true. Even like working hours, you know, we're taking yeah. our laptops home, we're working at home, or I certainly end up yeah. doing emails and work after after I yeah. eat. Yeah. And then uh, in our culture also now we have, lot of stuff about caffeine and uh, chocolate and you know many dark chocolate also have chemicals that will keep us awake and this is another example where some of us may be able to break down that caffeine within Mm. five to six hours and some people will take uh, nine to twelve hours to break down half of the caffeine so uh, even if two people are ending their last coffee at two o'clock in the afternoon somebody who can break down that caffeine very quickly, can still go to bed at 10 o'clock, but the other person is struggling. These days, caffeine is a thing that's not, it's such a, it has such a strong effect on brain, but it's not regulated. For example, even people who have same coffee habit, but then they're purchasing coffee at different stores. We know that different stores or different uh, coffee uh, shops uh, might serve coffee with very different level of caffeine in it, as much as twice different. So just imagine there are two friends, one is getting his coffee at home, brewing coffee, knows exactly how much caffeine he's putting into the drink, and then the other person who is 
buying coffee from a specific store every single day, but has no control and doesn't know how much caffeine is in this uh, coffee brew and maybe consuming twice more caffeine. Even though these two people who may be twins having the same exact genetic composition will have very different sleep habit depending on how much caffeine they consumed. So the point is very simple. That is, a body is not a car on automatic self-driving. We have to drive it manual. So that means we got to know all these aspects that affect our brain and body. So we all have to be little scientists. When you think about personalized healthcare, personalized medicine, personalized lifestyle, the person has to be involved in this decision-making process. And these are the examples where you can make small decisions and you can look at your own lifestyle to see what may be affecting. For example, for the two months in a year, I tried to stay away from coffee to see how much is my sleep drive. Because uh, in, in November, December, from Thanksgiving till middle of January, I tried to stay away from coffee and I can see that my sleep improves substantially. I can I feel like almost I have not slept for a couple of months when I start. So these are some of the examples where people can relate whether they are night owl by genetics or night owl by habit. One risk with being night owl is since our society, everything starts at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock in the morning. So then it becomes very difficult for night owls to wake up in the morning and then get on with the assigned task or go to the office, go to school, etc. Then they get into this uh, vicious cycle because they are sleep deprived. They're trying to stay awake. They have their first coffee, maybe second coffee. And in the afternoon, when they finally get time to have a substantial meal, that's their lunch, then the postprandial dip kicks in. And to get out of that, they again have another cup of coffee and that delays their sleep again. So they get into this vicious cycle in a way that they think that this is my normal life and I just cannot sleep. I'm genetically designed to be night owl. Mm. But try to take a step back and think, can you redesign your own life to see whether it's the caffeine and light exposure or your gym? In fact, there are people where they have mutations in their genes, clock genes, that will keep them awake very late into the night, but they are very rare. They're less than one in 100. <laughs> but if you talk to people, we know that nearly wow. one third or half of the people that self-describe them as night out. Same thing goes for early birds. There are very few people uh, who are designed to wake up earlier, between three and three, four, stay away. There is also a cultural element to it and there's a societal element to it. For example, if you're living in the middle of New York City where there's a lot of, or Hong Kong, uh, there are all these busy cities. So back in India, when I grew up uh, in the morning, there's so much noise, there's so much light that you're forced to wake up. (laughs) 
That reminds me of when I was in Istanbul and I stayed right by the Blue Mosque and it was always, it was always firing. And I was like, I'm awake and it's 6am and I'm on holiday. One of the big determinants that you speak about with our circadian rhythm and our clocks is, is light exposure. And what would you say in the terms of light as you're speaking, what's the best protocol for us to kind of start our day? I wanted to jump on in and take a moment to thank you for listening to the Live Well, Be Well show. It brings me so much joy to hear how stories on this podcast have helped you get the most out of life. And it's my mission to help even more people do the same. To achieve this, I need you to help me grow this show. So please share the link with a friend or maybe even drop it into the group chat. It's almost 20 years ago, we and two other labs, we co-discovered this uh, blue light sensor called melanopsin that's present in our retina. And that senses blue light, resets our clock, reduces depression, um, sleepiness, and then increases alertness. There are many benefits and also too much blue light is not good for some of us. So now the question is, how can we use this knowledge in our everyday life Mm. And uh, you said um, pretty simply, like just like food resets our clock or synchronizes our body clock, similarly, bright daylight resets our brain clock. So those who can, if you wake up, uh, the first thing if you do is uh, open your blinds. That's one thing that everybody can do, just wake up, open your blinds. And then if you're going to the bathroom, then make, and if you have a dimmable light switch in bathroom, which most people should have, instead of having a flip switch, if you can have a dimmer in your bathroom, then just crank it up all the way up so you have some light. And then if you have pets or if you have a garden or if you have some plants growing on a patio or some, this is the best time to step outside, check your plants, mm. check your bird feeder or take your pets for a walk or even a short walk because that morning light is really very invigorating. It uh, resets our clock, it suppresses melatonin, increases alertness. And then if you can, you can eat your breakfast either outdoor if the weather is fine. or After two uh, hours. (laughs) Yeah, of course, after one or two hours. (laughs) Next to the window, so. (laughs) (laughs) Really getting the daily cycle here, I love it. Yes, yes. Or if you cannot do that, then, you know, for your commute or during your first coffee break or tea break at work or during your lunch break, whatever time it is, if you can just step outdoor, even if it's a uh, cloudy day, stepping outdoor to get that light is uh, really very powerful because that light is extremely bright light. Even on a cloudy day, you are getting 5,000 lux of light. Whereas the best lighting you can have indoor with super bright LED, you get maximum 1,000 to 2,000 bucks, like 50 mm. to 20 to 50 times less light with the brightest light you can buy during daytime. I was going to say, there's actually an app. I think it's called Lux and it's free. And I always tell people to do this, download it, open it indoors and then step outside. And when you can visually see the difference of light that you're getting, it's actually, it's quite amazing when you do see it. Yeah, you are right 
on point because if we cannot measure it, then we don't get, uh, we don't see how no. huge a difference that one is. And it's always good to have a light meter app on your phone. It's handy because um, I have one and wherever I go, I just take out the light meter and check. And uh, I've done it so many times that now I know how it's like. Now you know. <laughs> yeah. So that's why um, it's very important to step outside. It's also, you know, light is the best antidepressant. It's plentiful mm. and free. You just have to step outside. And people who live in Nordic countries, they know this pretty well. So that's why they go to even light spa where they get exposed to 10,000 lux of light for 30 minutes to 60 minutes. And that's their antidepressant medication. And we know that because sad lights, which are the lights yeah. that people are now buying in the winter but for people that are suffering with seasonal effect disorder, which obviously is much lower mood, you can yeah. now even buy these lights that kind of creates that impact of sunlight, which we need more light if it's overcast. Because I'm just thinking, I'm living in the UK. There's not always terrific sunlight. Do we need to be outside longer if it's overcast or wet and rainy or is it the same? Show yourself some love and buy some arena flowers today. I have made them a vital part of my own self-care routine. So don't wait for someone else to give you that. Use the code LWBW50 to get 50% off your first three subscription boxes. I mean, uh, if we just measure, I mean, subjectively, if we look at melatonin suppression uh, more than that 5,000 to 10,000 lux is, we think it's good enough. But we know that there is a huge difference on our mood when it's, when it's a sunny day versus an overcast day. And that aspect, whether how our brain just feels more happier when there is no, no cloud in the sky, uh, that we still don't understand. Uh, mm -hmm. I guess that's something that I don't want to delve into because we don't understand the science behind it between a blue sky and overcast sky, white affects our mood. But from circadian point of view, uh, both of them seem to be similar. You mentioned there a really interesting sleep hormone, melatonin, which is, it reminds me of when I used to live in New York and I used to fly to New York and London all the time as a model. And I used to be probably every other week back and forth. And I used to take melatonin. And then I never felt that I woke up feeling great. And in the UK, I'd never really heard of melatonin because you couldn't buy it in the UK and you still can't buy it in the UK. Yeah. What's your views on melatonin taking a supplement? Melatonin is this uh, hormone that rises at nighttime for all of us. And it helps to for us to fall asleep and stay asleep. And it reduces in the morning. So that's what I said, that it takes one to two hours for melatonin to come down to almost undetectable, a very tiny amount during the daytime. And connecting that with light, one thing is we still don't understand why. If you actually go outside during daytime and get exposed to bright daylight, whether overcast day or very sunny day at the beach, that for some reason, the nighttime melatonin levels actually go up. So daytime, super bright light, uh, not eating your breakfast next to the window, but really taking a walk outside or afternoon 
hike really helps to crank up nighttime melatonin. So now coming back to melatonin and how much you should be taking, just mm. think about this way. If it is a natural hormone, of course, it may be okay. And we have seen there are many natural hormones that help. Thyroid hormone, for example, there are people who are born without the thyroid gland or they become hypothyroid and people take thyroid and they normalize. Mm. Think about insulin. There are a lot of people who cannot produce insulin. But one difference is if you think about thyroid and insulin, we know that everybody should check themselves and figure out what exact dose of that thyroid medication they should be taking or how many units of insulin they should be taking to control their glucose. So the same rule also applies to any other hormone like melatonin. So one thing is we don't know how much melatonin we actually need to fall asleep and also to wake up feeling normal. And what happens is there are two things. One is since melatonin is not regulated, it's a supplement. That means there are many melatonin pills that are available over the counter, which may have something other than melatonin mm. that may be keeping you asleep and making you feel groggy the next day. So that we don't understand. But even if you have the access to the best, purest form of melatonin, then the question is how much you should be taking. Mm. And this is something that we haven't figured out because there is no test for your nighttime melatonin because unlike other hormones, you have to take this, you have to figure out how much your body is producing by mm -hmm. taking a blood test or a oral swab, saliva, or total urine collected the next day and figuring out how much melatonin. It's not a standard test that you can order. So in the absence of this critical gap that we don't know how much melatonin we should be producing, how much we should be taking, then the question is, can we do something ourselves? Can we be a little bit of scientist on ourselves? Mm -hmm. Right now, if you go to buy melatonin in the US, typically the average melatonin dose is five milligram. And if you're lucky, you can get a three milligram pill. Sometimes you can even get 10 to 15 milligram pill. Mm. Um, we know that there are a lot of people who just need one milligram of melatonin. That's enough to keep them, make them fall asleep. And there are some people who even need half a milligram of melatonin. So that's why the rule of thumb is if you're trying to <laughs> take melatonin and feel okay the next day, you try to experiment on yourself. You can buy a, the best quality melatonin you can buy by looking at the bottle and seeing whether it is certified by XYZ. There are many third-party certification, and then you can break that melatonin to approximately half milligram or one milligram, take at bedtime, and then see how you feel the next day morning. And then by titrating, by doing this trial and error, you can figure mm -hmm. out how much melatonin you can take. So for example, just like you, I travel a lot of time, and once in a while I try melatonin, but I know that I can take maximum one milligram melatonin. For people that are suffering with insomnia, that are actually relying on it every day, is it detrimental if we're taking too much melatonin? Because I'm thinking people listening to this might think, oh, okay, well, when I find out my levels to take, then I can just take it and it will be fine. 
we haven't seen much adverse effect of melatonin in many clinical trials and that's the reason why melatonin is not regulated in the US because mm-hmm. if it had a big adverse effect then it should have been regulated having said that those studies were done many years ago with low dose melatonin so we don't know what is the impact of taking 5 mg 10 mg melatonin every single day for the rest of your life but there are also studies done on women who are at a high risk for breast cancer or those are recovering from breast cancer and there people have tried 5 mg of melatonin every night and again there was no long term adverse effects so that has also led to this idea that 5 mg melatonin may be okay for you melatonin also has other functions so for example it's a considered to be a very good antioxidant okay so melatonin jury still out but it's not incredibly harmful for us we don't need to panic around this we just need to become more aware of actually what's right for us and so i'm trying to think if anyone's listening to this and they are struggling with their sleep a few things that i'm thinking they can take away is looking at their coffee intake because that's another thing that you're talking a lot around disrupting our sleep when are they drinking coffee so i would say as you said when you stop drinking coffee it dramatically impacted your sleep time restricted eating so making sure that they maybe try to have a shorter eating window and a longer fasting um window maybe trying to eat around 6 7 p.m. and maybe not later into the night morning light daylight and also it made me think about when you were saying earlier just getting outside for a walk first of all and getting that fresh air and that daylight could help with their circadian rhythm and their sleep but the real kind of determining one that I also want to make sure I cover is exercise and is that going to impact people's sleep routine as well um or is there alternatively there's a lot of research coming out now that later in the afternoon seems to be a more optimal time to exercise so i think that's we're talking around a kind of lifestyle factors that could be disrupting our sleep which seems to be kind of the cornerstone to our circadian rhythm so any exercise is better than no exercise so if you the only time you can exercise in the morning that's okay just go do the exercise i have to say when i was reading that research i was quite thrilled because i hate morning exercise Yeah so let afternoon exercise seems to be ideal for our overall health and let afternoon actually our a body is warmed up you don't need to warm up before you exercise because your body is warmed up so that means mm. your heart is pumping slightly more because your basal heart rate is slightly more your oxygen consumption at rest is also slightly more in the afternoon so you have more oxygen intake your muscle is oxygenated and your muscle and joints are warmed up so we have you have less risk for injury but people who have problem with blood glucose control then blood glucose is better controlled with afternoon exercise and also people who have high blood pressure the blood pressure is better controlled with afternoon exercise wow so people who are diabetic are yeah. better to exercise in the afternoon Yes so that's what uh, the new research is showing but the new research was done only with one type of exercise high intensity interval training it will be important to see whether the garden variety exercise that everybody does walking hiking running uh being on the treadmill which is not high intensity interval training whether that also helps but there is more and more support for this afternoon exercise and better health another thing from physiology point of view 
late afternoon, early evening is when our pancreas begins to slow down. So that means it doesn't produce as much insulin in response to food as it does in the first half of the day. But muscle um, with very little help from insulin or even without any help from insulin can act as a sponge, particularly exercising muscle can act as a sponge to soak up or to absorb a lot of glucose. So that's why late afternoon, early evening exercise, either before or after mealtime is good for type 2 diabetics or people with diabetes or pre-diabetes to manage their blood glucose much better. Then coming to athletes, what we see is those who do endurance training for example, running, biking, anything that doesn't involve a ball or stick. Um, and most of us do those kind of exercise, endurance exercise or cardio. Um, the exercise efficiency, how much we can exercise is improved in the late afternoon than in the morning. Bottom line is exercise in late afternoon or evening will benefit everybody from those with pre-diabetes, diabetes, heart disease to elite athletes. I always remember reading this a while ago, and I don't know if this is true, but late evening exercise can affect your sleep. So our cortisol level actually is really high in the morning, but you never know. Some people may exercise so hard that their cortisol may rise and then may have a slight genetic predisposition that that cortisol might affect their sleep. So that's why I say be a scientist, yourself to figure out mm -hmm. when is the best time for you to exercise and mm -hmm. accordingly figure out whether you should go to the gym after 9 p.m. or should go to the gym between 3 and 7 p.m. It makes my life much easier because I much prefer working out in the afternoon. So I think, you know, for personal circumstances, it's great not having to get up and do an early one as being class. But for the top takeaways, people just to kind of go over what we have talked about today is starting your day with when you go to bed. So the time that you go to bed and trying to keep to the same time every day and every night, if possible. Then when you wake up, walk outside, step outside, water your plants, you know, don't look straight at your phone, maybe try and get that morning sunlight, turn on the lights in the house, have some water. And then a couple of hours later, ingest caffeine with, you know, milk, if so be it. And then then have our breakfast and then break our fast. Look at exercising later in the afternoon, if that's a possibility, um, but also trying to get outside in the afternoon as well. Is there anything else that's coming to mind that can really help people, you know, support their circadian rhythm, support their long-term health? I think the last one is uh, two to three hours before bed, avoid food, then avoid bright light because uh, bright light, two to three hours before bedtime can suppress melatonin, um, makes it harder for falling asleep. And also food two to three hours before bedtime makes it harder to either fall asleep or to have an uninterrupted sleep. And does it matter about the types of foods that we're eating? I think we should just avoid food for two to three hours before bedtime. <laughs> I mean, there's so many different products. I mean, I even remember my mum trying to give me Horlicks before I went to bed. When I'm looking at it now, it's ultimately just giving me a massive impact of sugar, but it's it's referenced and marketed in the sense of this will help you fall asleep. Yeah, what might happen is you get a glucose high and then a dip. 
And when that glucose dips, then you feel tired and you want to go to sleep. Um, but at the same time, we know that that late night eating is really bad because when melatonin is present, it reduces insulin function and production. So essentially, <laughs> that late night food is almost similar to being diabetic. Wow. And in fact, there was a term in 70s called evening diabetes. So that means late night, if you eat, your glucose response in a healthy person would look like as if that person is diabetic. I think this is the biggest thing, isn't it? It's do not believe what is being marketed to you every time, because ultimately it's not a magic cure and it's not going to make you fall asleep. So before we go, I have a couple of questions from people that have written into us um, and I'd love if you could answer them. This was quite interesting from Mariah. She said her inner circadian rhythm is off track since she's had COVID. Best approach to get it back on track. Yeah, so it's uh, difficult to understand what is off track, but I guess uh, the sleep time and wake up time might have changed. And what happened during COVID was we are mostly indoors. So for very long, and if somebody got COVID during this social isolation, and uh, then it was even more difficult because people are isolated for 14 days, or in some cases, 21 days. And then since they were weak, they also didn't go out. So essentially, they were living in a cave for many days. So the best thing is to go back uh, the points that we discussed, morning or daylight, and then daytime light exposure, time-restricted eating, all of these will help to get back that daily rhythms and get back to a good night of sleep. Well, I think that was what you referenced, isn't it, from, the, from that mice study from the 168, yeah, yeah. that it basically reset yes. their circadian clocks. So I'd say maybe starting with the time-restricted eating yeah. to see if, see if that helps. And then Emily, now I guess this is kind of what we've just spoke about, but just to get one more in, what do you think are the best keys for unlocking a good circadian rhythm? Yeah, I guess the first thing is the time restricted eating is really the most powerful one because even mm -hmm. for, we just recently finished a study on firefighters um, who are getting exposed to light at random time, the eating, they're also ex exposed to a lot of stress at different times. When they follow time restricting, 10 hours time restricting, then they remain functional. So they, their physical fitness, emotional fitness, intellectual fitness remain pretty high, and they could reduce their long-term disease risk by reducing inflammation, normalizing blood glucose and blood pressure. So that's wow. a clear example where even if you have random sleep pattern a lot of stress, very stressful job. Just time restricting was the first step to towards a strong circadian rhythm. Wow. I guess because, you know, you are looking at extreme groups there. You're looking at shift yeah. work and essentially shift workers. So yeah. they are the ones that I guess we see the highest incident yeah. of chronic disease because their sleep patterns are, yeah. are so erratic. So literally just starting with time restricted eating. That's fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Sachin. I, that was a wonderful, wonderful interview. And I just feel like there is so much more that I would love to speak to you about. So I'd love to have you on again. And we could just talk about lots of things that we haven't managed to cover yeah. in today's episode. Thank you. I really had a wonderful time and looking forward to discussing all of this again. Have a yeah. perfect circadian day. 
What a fascinating conversation. Thank you, Dr. Satya Panda, for your infinite wisdom on sleep. Make sure you download his app on Time Health to better understand how food, sleep, exercise, and light can boost your health and longevity. There is a link in the show notes. And for my Apple subscribers, I've recorded a special bonus conversation with Dr. Sachin Panda, where he reveals the future of the research on circadian biology. Sign up for the free trial on Apple Podcasts and don't miss out because you won't find this exclusive ad-free content anywhere else. One last thing, I've created something just for you. It's a 30-day online course to give your well-being journey that extra boost, and it's totally free. Go to sarahandmacklin.com to download it now. There's a link in the description, and I'll see you on the next episode.